down there this morning. So, yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for being here, uh, braving the, the, the beautiful spring weather here today. So, but, uh, so I have always been um, pretty intrigued by like military and war movies. Um, I don't know, I'm probably not alone. We have, we have actually a lot of people in the Greenhouse family that have military background. Anybody with military background? Quite a few, quite a few. And I know there's a lot more that aren't here either. So, and we have a lot of military, a lot of first responders, a lot of law enforcement. Um, and, and I've just always been intrigued. I've never served. Um, but apparently I have a look like I have. Like, I don't know. Like, it's kind of funny, especially when I was younger. We lived in, in, in uh, o- northwest Oklahoma, and we weren't far from uh, uh, Vance Air Force Base. And when I would go to Enid, Oklahoma, where Vance Air Force Base was, <clears throat> I had to turn down so many discounts because they were always like military. And I was like, no, sorry. The other day, actually, I was working out with Tony at the gym, and this guy, this definite special forces looking dude. He just is kind of eyeballing us. I was like, oh no, he's going to jump me. You got my back, Tony? You got my back? No. And he goes, he goes, do you guys, do you guys serve? And I was kind of like, I mean, I, I've served a lot of things. What, what? And he goes like military. I was kind of like, no. And he goes, well, you guys, you guys look really familiar. I said, where'd you serve? Syria? I said, never been there. Um, <laughs> And I was getting all puffed up because I've heard this for years, like, oh, yeah, you look you know, like special forces or something like that. I was like, do you know many six, seven special forces dudes? Like, we're, there's not much subtle about me, you know, and sneaky, right? And then, he, and, then, and then the truth bomb hit. And he goes, especially that guy. He looks like he was, I was like, mm, there you go. But, you know, I mean, I've always, ever since I can remember, I've always been intrigued by especially war movies you know, Glory, Saving Private Ryan, Gladiator, Schindler's List, 1917, Dunkirk, Black Hawk Down, Hacksaw Ridge, Braveheart, Enemy at the Gate, Lone Survivor, A Thin Red Line, 300, and so many more, right? Now all the dudes are like, babe, I know what we're doing this afternoon. More movie marathon. There you go. But the thing about these, these movies is that they remind us that we live in a fallen, sinful, broken hurting and hurtful world, right? Like, like it doesn't take a lot of imagination, a lot of observation um, to see the nastiness and pain that is in our world. Just this morning, uh, actually last night they sent it, but um, Nate and Emily sent me a text just asking for prayer for, um, they have some connections, some friends that are actually uh, missionaries in Haiti, is that right? Working with medical things? Run a, run a university and school, and if you guys have been following what's happening in Haiti right now, like, gangs are running rampant. I mean, they, they, they went into the airport and started shooting people and, and killing people, and they're just going in. My brother actually years ago went to Haiti on a service trip, and, I mean, he came back, and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, just reality, and it's just, it's just fallen apart even more since then, and, and, like, we're just surrounded in a world that's hurt. We have a bubble, Let's be honest. We live in a bubble that is pretty exceptional um, in the world, but especially in the course of history. But it also reminds us that in the midst of that hurting, broken, sinful, painful world, we're called to make a difference. We're called to be an influence. Now, what's kind of interesting and ironic 
uh, that I'm so interested is that I, I, I'm kind of more along the lines of God calls us to be peacemakers, right? Like I've always been kind of intrigued and sometimes I know it takes force to create peace. Um, but usually, um, and this might, maybe it's because I was freakishly large as a kid. My mom would always say, use your words, use your words. I was like, but I want to, you know, <laughs> like, like, but I think that was deeply ingrained um, is that, hey, instead of using weapons and destruction, let's use other we- uh, methods first. Uh, but the reality is, is that sometimes we need to rise up. We need to be warriors in a sense. Now, we all probably have different experiences, backgrounds, convictions, beliefs uh, about war. But you can't deny the existence of both good and evil, right and wrong. And that we're called to engage wrong and evil and bad and the injustice in our world. And we're called to be intentional and direct. Now, God didn't design us to passively go with the flow and just say, well, you know, sucks to be them, right? Hope someone steps up and makes a difference. He wants us to engage. He calls us to be warriors. Now, again, we're going to be looking this morning at what that means to have the heart of a warrior. Um, Last week, we saw how God didn't choose David to build the temple. David's sitting in his in his palace, and he's kind of like, well, this isn't right. God should have a, a palace just like me, and so he wants to build one, but instead, God says, no, 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 I have a different plan for you. Your son's going to build it, but I want you to unify and strengthen my nation as the kingdom of God, and so this morning, we're going to be looking at three different aspects of what it means to be a warrior, to have the heart of a warrior. Now, usually, if you guys are frequent here at Greenhouse, we go verse by verse, word by word, we, we slog through. This morning, we're actually covering three chapters, 2 Samuel 8, 9, and 10. So don't worry, we're not going to go verse by verse, word by word. In fact, I want you, that's your homework today, is to go home and read 2 Samuel chapters 8, 9, and 10, because then um, what I'm going to be talking about this morning will actually make a lot more sense. But we're going to pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 8. And I apologize, I'm going to do a lot of summarizing today and only focus on a couple uh, sections of scripture here. Um, But again, please, please go back and read that because there's so much in these chapters that you have to read for yourself. Now, this morning, I want to start off by just saying, we got to understand this is a real people that happened at a real place in a real time. Like there's archaeological history. These are real towns, real uh, tribes. And I know it's kind of small. We really need to get a bigger TV here. But, but, um, but you guys can kind of follow along of, of where we're at here. So here's Jerusalem right here. This is where David is, is, is seated, right? Like this is the center of the Holy Land right here. And so um, it, it, uh, the gray area, what's interesting is that this gray area is the, the kingdom that David inherited. As he settled in on his first day in the job, Uh, taken over the White House, right? Like this is the area that he had to work with. The green is what all he expanded in the conquest as his, as in his tenure as a king. So um, in chapter eight, we see David kicking butt. Like it's, it's crazy what what he does. He starts off with the Philistines, Philistia. This is where the Philistines are from, right? Goliath, the taunters, the, the ridiculers, they were Israel's longtime enemy that basically they came in and they were preventing 
Israel from taking over what God had promised to them, right? And they came in, and Saul, the previous king, was unable to dislodge them, right? They kept on attacking and taunting, and they wouldn't leave them at peace. And so they were, they were longtime enemies, and, and David comes in, and he kicks them out. Then he moves over from the, from the west, he goes east to Moab, right? The Moabites. Um, these, the Moabites are descendants of Lot. Lot is Abraham, who remember the Abrahamic covenant. Um, Lot is Abraham's uh, nephew. And so what's really interesting is that David used to have good relationships with the Moabites. In fact, um, such good relationships that when Saul is coming after David and his family, he sends him to Moab to go live with his relatives because his great-grandma, Ruth, was a Moabite. So what's interesting, though, is that somewhere along the lines, the relationship soured, and they were attacking Israel, so David takes them out. So west, now he goes east. Um, then he goes south to, to Edom, the Edomites. He de, the Edomites are actually the descendants of Esau. If you remember Esau, that is Jacob's brother, right? And Jacob takes the, takes the, the promised inheritance. And so, yeah, Esau rightfully is a little bit upset. He doesn't really like Jacob. And so these nations have long time been at war with each other. And then we go all the way up north to Zobah. Um, and uh, <clears throat> the king... Had a uh, Ezer, which is ironic because that means Baal is my help. Yeah, <laughs> that's the same thing that I said. When I was studying, I was kind of like, okay, we're starting to get a picture of just who it is that David is moving out of the land, right? Like he's taking over this land from them. Um, so that kind of, we'll talk about that more in just a little bit. And then we have Syria, which is not modern day Syria. That's way up here, right? But at the time, the Syrian, a lot of, uh, translations will say the, are, uh, Arameans. Um, he takes, he, uh, he goes after them and then Ammon, he goes after them, the Ammonites. Um, and so we see David is kind of securing his, 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 his fledgling nation on all sides, Right. He's, uh, he's trying to uh, secure the land, and then a part of what they did, too, is that is we would either displace them or take them over, and then he would collect tributes, a.k.a. taxes. So that did a couple things. One, that kind of fueled his growing military, his growing kingdom, and so it's kind of like we're going to assimilate you into our new nation, our new kingdom, and you need to pay taxes to us. Um, and uh, so he does that. And then also, like I said, it kind of keeps them under his rule. Now, what's really interesting is that King uh, Toy of Hamath, the far north up there, just above the green, um, he actually kind of sees what's going on. And I think he just kind of reads the wind and kind of says, hey, if you can't beat him, join him. So he says, hey, I'm just going to pay you t tributes. I'm going to give you taxes. Um, and, and so David says, awesome, let's go. And so if we step back, if you read, which you're going to, because that's your assigned homework, if you read 2 Samuel chapter 8, you're probably going to have the same um, response that I did. This is awful. This is terrible. How is David not charged as a war criminal? Because he slaughters tens of thousands of troops. He takes horses that were pulling the enemy's chariots, and he hobbles them, he hamstrings them, he injures them so that they're ineffective, right? He basically spikes the cannons, so to speak. And, and, 
I mean, it gets, it gets very uh, specific where with, um, with the Moabites, he actually has them lay down head to toe in long lines. And then he has a length of rope. It doesn't specify how long that rope was, but he would have them lay down and then he would put the rope down here and he would stretch it out. One third, kill them. One third, kill them. One third, save them. One third, kill. One third, kill. One third, save. Yeah. I didn't want to talk about this this morning. There, there's parts of the story that, uh, that I, I'm not comfortable with. I don't, I don't understand. God, why? Why would you, did you endorse this? Did you call this? Did, 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 you, did you just put up with it? Like what? I don't know, to be honest. But it happened. And so we have to look at this, right? Tens of thousands of people killed in this process. Now, I, again, I, I'm not super comfortable with it, but it's there, so we have, to, we have to dig in. One of the things that we have to do when we're reading, especially in the Old Testament, I love, there's a book that I read um, in seminary that talked about how we live today, they lived 3,000 years ago. We live in um, America, they lived in a very different culture. Different place, different time, different culture, different norms, different realities, everything. Now, this is not a cop-out because I've wrestled with it. But at the same time, to interpret correctly, we can't sit on our side of the chasm after 3,000 years of learning from failures. And, and hopefully we're a little bit more civil, a little bit more uh, kind. But are we? I mean we still see this stuff going on today in our world. Um, and, and war is nasty. It's violent. It's not kind. It's not sanitary. People die. So if we look over a 3,000-year chasm, what we have to do is we have to cross this rope bridge of interpretation to go stand on their side, to take in the sites, to take in the culture, to say, what was the reality in that day and time? What was the normal warfare of the day? How did David compare to the other kings? Why did he take such drastic measures? There is a fantastic book called God Behaving Badly. Uh, is, is God, is God uh, of the Old Testament angry, sexist, and racist? Like, it's, it's a fantastic read. It's, it's great. Um, and uh, it actually does that work of saying, okay, this sounds awful. And today we can point fingers at God and say, how could you, how could you? The reality is, is that God stepped into his creation, and in, in the reality, it was brutal back then. You look at what these nations were doing. They had idols. They had temples that had prostitution and child sacrifice. They were nasty. I mean, the things that these nations were doing were awful. Now, we can either say, you know, hey, you know, let them do what they do, or we can say God gave the Israelites this land, and they're trying to purify it. They're trying to get rid of child sacrifice. They're trying to get rid of temple prostitution. They're trying to get rid of all these weird practices that came from the gods of that day and time and location. And so God is righteous, he's pure, he's holy, and he says, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Now, 
fortunately, we can cross back over <laughs> to our side of the chasm and to see what's happened. We have the whole Old Testament, we have the New Testament, we have Jesus, we have the, the early church, and we can learn and say, okay, God did that in that place, that time for this reason, but now how do we apply these principles to our situation today? I mean, what's really interesting is the Philistines were constantly attacking. They weren't just attacking the, the Israel, they were attacking the God of Israel, if you remember when we were talking about Goliath, he was taunting Yahweh, the God, the creator of all things. The Edomites hated Israel from the beginning. Amalek, um, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, they came in and they raided Israel. They destroyed everything. They burned everything down. And then they took all the women and children and made them their slaves, including David's own family. So there's a history here that isn't always so squeaky clean. And like I said, idols, gods, evil practices, sacrifices, uh, prostitution, just all these things like that. Now, what we've kind of have been looking at in men's Bible study on Fridays is we just finished up First Kings. And what we see is, is because these things weren't completely eradicated from the land, because there was kings that allowed the, the, the stuff to continue, and sometimes they full-on embraced it, it ruined the kingdom. It ruined what God was trying to do. But here we see at the beginning, David is trying to do whatever he can to start the nation off on the right foot. Plus, David is trying to do what God called him to do, to take a fledgling tribe, to grow it into a nation, and then to finally establish it as a kingdom. And that's what David's trying to do. Now, there's a couple keys that will help us understand. It sounds nasty, it sounds brutal, but yet you look at the heart of what's going on behind here um, in, in chapter 8, 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 11. It says that King David dedicated all these gifts to the Lord. So he was taking all the things that he had conquered and acquired or that were free, freely given to him, and what did he do? He dedicated them to the Lord. That word dedicated uh, means uh, gada, which means set apart as sacred to God. So instead of taking the spoils of war like Saul did or like other kings had or would um, for themselves, he literally takes everything that he said, and this is yours, God. This isn't my kingdom. This is your kingdom. And so I'm going to take everything that we conquered. It's not for selfishness. It's, it's, he, he surrenders them to God. And then there's another key in chapter 8, verses 6 and 14. It says, the Lord made David victorious wherever he went. That tells us a lot, but unfortunately, in, when we translate the, the Hebrew into English, we lose some of the meaning because that word, we can misunderstand this, right? Like everywhere David went, God made him win, right? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I'm going to go win that championship. I'm going to go get that job that will give me a million dollars. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. It's not really what it means. It's not a prosperity gospel verse here. The word victorious um, means yasa, which means to help, to deliver, to save. So David is acting out of obedience and surrender to God, and God is faithful. He's going to be there to help. He's going to save him. It's not just David did whatever he wanted and God made it happen. It's David was being obedient to God, and God showed his faithfulness. This verse is descriptive, not just prescriptive. Okay? 
David wasn't using God to make all of his wildest dreams come true. Instead, God is using David to make his plans come true. Now, that just maybe stepped on some of our toes because we like to use God as the cosmic sugar daddy in the sky. Pull the prayer lever and then see what happens, right? Like, like I'm going to pray. <sighs> Come on, God, more than I could ask for, right? Am I the only one who thinks that? <laughs> or you, you, can, you can laugh at that. That's okay because we do it, right? It's all over our culture. Instead, he surrenders himself and says, God, you call me to do this. Either, either it's going to work because you're behind it or I'm going to look like an idiot. I don't care. You've called me to do this and I'm going to be faithful. I would rather be faithful and look stupid than be selfish and use God for my own gains. We are able to do what God calls us to do through his power and his presence in our lives. God promises us his abiding presence to empower us to fulfill the mission he has for us. If God has clearly called us to something, if he has called us to a mission, he will be faithful. He won't thank you. He won't just say, I don't know, go try it and see if it works, right? Instead, we can walk in confidence. We can go to bed at night knowing that even though I didn't make up the ground I wanted to, I know that as long as I'm pursuing what God has for my life, the mission that he's set before me, it's God's. Guys, when we moved here 10 and a half years ago, people thought we were crazy. Nothing's going to work. A Christian church has never lasted in Saratoga more than a couple years. You guys are stupid. This is a church planting graveyard. That's why we're going. My, my firefighter buddy back there, do firefighters become firefighters because they're afraid of fire? No, they run into the flames. They go where they're needed the most. And what's so cool is that the mission to grow disciples who love God, love people, serve the world, consumed us before we ever got here. And it's kind of like, can we be disciples who, who, who practice this, who live it out, who call others towards that? There's been so many challenges along the way, but challenges are simply opportunities for God to show his faithfulness. Right now, I mean, I know we're a little bit lighter today, but, but God has been faithful and he's been growing this church family. And we're kind of like, okay, this is getting crazy, God. What are we doing? What are we doing? And God gave us that vision of, of saying we're going to build not a church but an athletic center so we can bless the community and, and we can make it self-supported financially to where we don't have to, hey, you guys need to give more money to pay for this building that, that, that we want to build for you, right? Like, like we, it's going to take some of that. But at the same time, like, like, we want to build something that lives out the mission of who we are and why God has called us. And guess what? We get to use that whenever we want, right? Like, that is a mission. And, and we've always said, if this is going to work, it's not going to be us. It's going to be God. Because God has called us and has moved us. And, and that's, that's just the church, right? But what about us in our daily lives? Who has God made us to be in our homes in our schools, at our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our clubs, in our places of play. Who has God made us to be? What is the mission that he has for us? To know him and to make him known. Can we wake up every day knowing that God is faithful and goes with us everywhere, he, where, everywhere we go and he helps us, he delivers us, he saves us, and he gives us victory everywhere we go? 
So what did David do with that success? In 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15, it said, So David reigned over all Israel and administered justice and righteousness for all the people. He didn't create a kingdom for himself. He knew that he had been entrusted as the king to lead God's kingdom on behalf of God. And so for him, what was really important was justice and righteousness. All the mayhem that had been going on in the land before, before David brought the kingdom of God there was turned into justice and righteousness. David brought purity and order in God's rule to the land, which was a huge switch from what had already been there. So David shows us in 2 Samuel chapter 8 that to be God's warrior, we need to be focused. He had plenty of opportunities to do all sorts of different things, right? And that happened with Saul, and it will happen with most of the kings that follow him. But David shows focus. He knows that God has a mission for him. He could have made it about him. He could have done his own thing. He was the king. He could have gotten away with it. And unfortunately, we're going to see next week where he loses focus. Spoiler alert. Um, But in this section, we see him purely focused on who he is and what God is doing and how he's called to join in. So, focused. Second Samuel 9 then all of a sudden shifts. 8 is like this action thriller, like gruesome 300 type, you know, movie. And then all of a sudden 9 is sort of like totally different track, right? Again, David takes a break from the battles and he starts looking for the remnant. He says, I want to know if any of Saul's family is still left. Now, what's really interesting is is that everybody's thinking the same thing. Uh Uh-oh, David's asking for Saul's family. What kings did at that day and time is they would round up all their predecessor's family and they'd kill them, oftentimes very brutally, because they wanted to establish their dominance over the kingdom. They were the king. And so they would round up the family and they would brutalize them, they would torture them, and they would kill them to make sure everybody knew how powerful they were. And so everybody was kind of scared. And somebody comes across and and says, well, yeah, there's Jonathan's son, um, Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth. Um, He's tucked away in far, far away Lodabar, right? Um, What's interesting is that depending on where your loyalties lie, Mephibosheth could have been the rightful heir to to the throne, Right? If you, wanted, if you weren't a David fan, you could go rally around Mephibosheth, and I'm going to tr- stop saying that name so many times because it's hard. Meph, there you go. Um, but he, So David, what's crazy is that um, he, he finds him. Now, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, uh, we find out what happened to Mephibosheth. Uh, it says that when Saul and Jonathan, his grandpa and dad, were killed in battle, um, Saul's uh, one of Saul's or, or uh, Jonathan's servants actually took five-year-old Mephibosheth and, and she picks him up and she runs and runs for their life. Well, and tragically, as she's running, she drops him. And the Bible says that he was, he was crippled in both legs. Now, we don't know if they were broken or, or mutilated or whatever. As I was kind of thinking about this, I can't find anything. Any, but to me, I almost kind of wonder, was he paralyzed? Because if he was a five-year-old baby and he's dropped in an awkward way, it could have paralyzed him to where he, he couldn't move. I don't know. Regardless, he was, he was crippled and he wasn't able to, uh, to walk around and stuff. And so they kind of, they, they took him away and hit him, right? Um, 
Now, again, everybody's sitting there thinking the same thing. Okay, David's going to find him, and he's going to wipe out the family of the previous king. But in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 3, David says, I want to show God's kindness to them. And then he repeats in, in chapter 7 when they say, yeah, here's Mephibosheth. Um, he says, I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. Now, that word kindness is the Hebrew word hesed which means goodness, faithfulness, love. He says, I want to show God's love to you. And then he says, I want to show God's love to you because I promised your dad that I would. And if you remember, Jonathan and David were best friends. They were incredibly uh, just faithful friends together. Now, David is taking a huge risk because he actually brings Saul's descendant into his home. He not only says, I'm going to let you live, I'm going to bring you into my palace because you need to be taken care of. You have a spot at my table. In other words, he basically adopts him into his family. He takes the one guy who could challenge his throne and he shows loving, faithful kindness, sacrificial love to this guy. Now, if that doesn't scream of the coming Messiah who would come from the line of David, I don't know what does. He sacrificially loves the people around him. So David's integrity and his heart after God's heart compelled him to show mercy. So warriors need to be focused, and warriors also need to show mercy, even, it's at, even if it's at their own risk. Now what's really cool here is that God leads David to reverse the shame of Saul's reign. Saul was, Saul was a mess, right? Like he left this blemish on Israel, and instead David comes in and he brings healing to that. He brings mercy and he reverses the shame. What's really ironic is that Bosheth from Mephibosheth means scattered in shame. Can you imagine having shame in your name? Hi, I'm Jason Shame Queering, right? Like, why'd you get that name? Don't even ask, right? Like, like but David reverses that shame with mercy and love. And Mephibosheth goes from being an outcast to someone with identity, purpose, belonging, freedom, and so much more. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 8. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. With God, there is no shame. He loves us exactly the way we are, and he loves us too much to leave us that way, right? He changes our reality for the better. So to be a warrior, we have to show focus, and we need to demonstrate mercy. And then in chapter 10, we see one more thing. What's really interesting is that um, at, we don't know how long after, but King uh, Nahash of the Ammonites dies, and so his son, Hanan, takes over. Um, now, the, the Moabites, or sorry, the Ammonites are, are re, uh, relatives of both the Moabites and their Israelites, right? And so there's some, a lot of history that goes between there. And so what's interesting is that David says he wants to show Hesed once again, but not just to his, his predecessor's offspring, but to one of his enemies that he just conquered, right? And, and he died, and so what does he do? He says, I want to show goodness, faithful kindness. And so he sends a group of ambassadors, not warriors, but ambassadors to go, it says, express sympathy. And that word express, uh, Sympathy is Nahum, which means to comfort, to console, to give compassion, to share grief. You see, David doesn't just 
subjugate a nation and then just say, I'm going to keep you under my thumb. He says, I actually care about you. Yeah, it was ugly to get this all together, but I'm really actually a good king and I care about you so much to where I want to feel your pain. Like, I'm sorry that this happened and I'm going to send these people, these guys to come and say, what's going on? How can we help? How can we support you? You're not alone. That's a pretty big move, isn't it? To be a warrior who actually has compassion. I'm not a warrior because I hate you. I'm a warrior because I believe in what's good. Because I have a higher calling. I have a very high focus. And it's about mercy, right? Now, what's unfortunate is that Hanan and his advisors get together and they're saying, David just sent these ambassadors over. No, they're spies. They're coming to spy on us so that they can humiliate us further. And so what we're going to do is they actually took all these ambassadors and they shaved off half their beards and took their robes and split it up the back. Kind of funny in a sense. I mean, that's what's kind of funny, but it's actually much worse than what we even think. Because in that day and time, in, if you were a, a Middle Eastern, your beard as a man was your pride, your joy. It was a sign of, of maturity, of authority. Mm, yeah, there you go, I like this, right? But it was, it was like to, 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 you know, the cowboy hat, you don't touch a cowboy's hat. Well, you don't touch a man's beard, right? You don't, because that is like they're, what they loved. And it was only shaved in times of grief and mourning and self-humiliation. It's kind of like if all of a sudden we had some, something happen, then I'm going to shave it to show just how radical my grief is. Or if I want to self-humiliate, like I made a big mistake and I got to repent, so I'm going to show everybody just how embarrassed I am about it. Please, please forgive me, right? But to shave half of somebody's, that is a direct insult. The, the clothing, right? I mean, one, it's kind of funny because it's their butt, right? Like they're exposing. They go, the other day, I was at the gym and I was on the leg press machine. And it's very awkward because you're laying on your back and you're putting your feet up in the air and you're like pushing this up there. And what's, they should do this against the wall. But no, what it is, is that there's like this green space and people are walking forth and you're just kind of like, woo, right there. And the other day I had a, a pair of shorts and I think just like a fold unfolded, but I thought, oh my gosh, I think my pants just ripped. As I was going up, and I, I was at the end of a pretty heavy set, and I was kind of like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? So, like, that was embarrassing. But can you imagine being paraded in, in them, like, cutting and making a big show? Now, here's the thing. Your clothing showed your identity, showed your status, showed your power. These guys were trying to ridicule not only the ambassadors, not only the king of the ambassadors, not only the kingdom of the ambassadors, but the God of the ambassadors. It's pretty bad. Instead of receiving that, that mercy, they ridiculed it, they doubted it, they turned it away. And so David actually says, stay there, grow your beards back, patch up your robe, and then when you are, are working through that, then come back. That's how deep it actually was. And then what's crazy is that Hannah then realizes just what he did, 
And so he says, oh no, we don't have an army big enough. So he makes some alliances. He brings in tens of thousands of warriors from other, from other kingdoms. And, and one is from the north, one is from the south. And they have the, the army of Israel. So Israel marches out and he says, you, you, you messed up, right? And so, so they have them sandwiched in. And Israel is outnumbered, outpositioned. It looks hopeless. But David's military leaders say in, in 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 12, it says, Be courageous. Let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of God. May the Lord's will be done. David had all the power, but surrenders his power to show mercy. That mercy is received with shame. He had just overcome shame with mercy, and now his mercy is met with shame. But David musters up the same courage that he had in chapter 8 in facing impossible odds where he was focused, he also was courageous. And that's the third thing that war- warriors need to be courageous. And what's cool here is that their courage isn't just from themselves or from each other. They're saying, let God's will be done. We're fighting for God. So win or lose, this is God's battle. We're we're just here for him. Now, what's really interesting is that in this situation, David ends up winning. And so, yay, end of story, right? Well, not quite. Next week, we're going to look at how this is a shift in David's reign. And encourage you to come back next week because we're going to see how after all this focus, after all this mercy, after all this courage, something starts to erode. Something starts to shift in David's reign. But for now, we're going to leave it right here. The big idea of this section is that God gives us the strength to be focused, merciful, and courageous. God doesn't call or design us to go through life apathetically fluttering from thing to thing, aimlessly being influenced and tossed like waves in the sea, right? He doesn't call us to be self-centered and selfish and mean. And he doesn't want us to hide in fear. He calls us to be warriors. Men, women, children, we're called to be warriors, Now, that might sound weird, and I'm not talking literally like chapter (laughs) 8, unless God calls us, but um, I'm talking about having a singular focus in what God has us to do. Do we wake up in the morning and we know who we are and what God has for us? What is God doing in the world around us, and how are we called to join in with us? Are we joining in with what Jesus and the Holy Spirit are doing right now? Are we willing to, to, to live out sacrificial mercy and love? I love how 1 John 4.19 says that we love because he loved us first. Well, I don't love that person. Why not? Because I don't want to. Well, guess what? God loved you. God loves that person. So we need to love each other. Sometimes being a warrior means we need to fight with love, right? He says, if somebody slaps you, turn the cheek. Right? Someone takes your coat, give them give him another coat, right? He sometimes calls us to to love in the midst of that battle, right? Fight with love and mercy and grace. 
do we live every day with the courage of knowing that God is present in and with us through his word and through his spirit? We have the power that he gives us. Like I said, we are always empowered to do what God has called us to. So this morning, to wrap up, moving from knowing to doing, from belief to action, three questions. One, this week, can we identify anything that distracts us from focusing on the mission that God has for our lives? Can we identify the, the, the distractions, maybe they're temptations or addictions or, or selfishness or, or our, our background or things that are going on or material pursuits or, or whatever it might be, right? Just say, God, search me and know me. Reveal anything that's in me that's not from you, right? And, and help me to see what is pulling me off from the mission that you have from us. It's funny, this, this, this uh, on, on my birthday, it's tradition, I always just go hike uh, Lake Mountain, and this is the first year I didn't take Roscoe with me, my dog, because I realized every year what he does is he'll go, like, I hike three miles, he hikes ten, right? And then I wonder why he gets so worn out. He's like, choo, 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 everywhere. And, and so I was like, you can't focus, and I'm not going to have you on a leash, so you'll miss out, Roscoe, right? Like, but it was kind of sad because I was like, I love hiking with him, and it's so much fun. But when he gets out into that deep snow, he wears himself out. Do we do the same thing? Do we get so sidetracked with things in life that we miss out on what God has for us right here and right now? Second, can we identify anything that is keeping us from showing mercy? Can we identify anything that's keeping us from showing mercy? Now, a lot of times when we've been hurt, our natural reaction is to hurt back, right? Well, but they hurt me so bad. Yeah, but can we love? Can we forgive? Can we redeem? Can we confess? Can we say, hey, did I do something to contribute to this? Can I, you know, how can we seek reconciliation here? How can I show mercy? I know you don't deserve it, or I probably don't deserve it, but yet God, that's what mercy is, Right? Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Can we, can we live those things out? And if we say, well, no, not that person, not in that situation, now we're starting to play God. Are we putting limits on the grace and the mercy that Jesus gives us? So identify, are there areas where we are withholding forgiveness, mercy, grace, love, Forgiveness, are we, are we withholding those and, and why? And then the last thing is identify one thing that God is calling you to do this week that will require courage. How do we live a life of focus? How do we live a life of mercy? And how do we live a life of courage? My prayer is that as we wrestle with this passage, we create the space for the Holy Spirit to speak into our hearts, our minds, our lives to reveal the things that maybe we're, we're wrestling with, that we need to surrender, that we need to ask for forgiveness, that we need to confess, that we need to, to say, okay, God, show me the way. Show me what you're doing. I am all in with you. I want to go with you. I want to close out with every, every week we're looking at a psalm that kind of goes with what we're talking about this week. And this week I want to close out with some verses from Psalm chapter 27. David says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation, so why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger, so why should I tremble? When evil people come to devour me, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. 
Though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even if I am attacked, I will remain confident. And verse 11, teach me how to live, O Lord. Lead me along the right path, for my enemies are waiting for me. And then verse 14, wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the example of David that we can learn from. God, the, the fact that he faced some incredibly hard situations. God, I'm sure he had the temptation to make it all about him and to do what he wanted to do. But God, thank you for his heart that was sensitive to your, towards yours. He wasn't perfect, far from. But God, we see an example of what it means to live focused, compelled by the mercy that you show us and how we can show that with each other, and then the courage to, to live our lives on mission for you. God, help us to look at what happened 3,000 years ago and to see countless examples of how those principles as, as warriors have been lived out over the last 3,000 years. God, I pray that, that this morning, those of us who are here, those who are watching or listening online or later on, God, that we could listen to your voice in our lives, that we could, we could look at what's holding us back. How are we allowing ourselves to be held captive to some other king? Maybe we're, we're actively seeking out another king and, and, and living for that king, but God, help us to see that and to see where that would go, kind of like how David looked at all the things that were going on in other nations and saying, this isn't right. This isn't good. God, help us to, to be vulnerable with you and vulnerable with each other, to allow you to set us free from the things that have been holding us back. God, to walk in your victory, in your presence, in your faithfulness, in your goodness. God, help us to be men and women, young people, old people that are warriors for you. God, warriors that are characterized by justice, by righteousness, by mercy, by grace, by love, by forgiveness. God, help us to be influenced people of influence in our lives, in the, in the lives of the people around us. Help us to share your goodness and your love. God, this week, today, speak to us, break us, heal us, move us, inspire us, and empower us. God, we love you. We pray these things in your name.